The Rise of Steel Part 2 by Brian Potter Welcome to The Rise of Steel Part 2. We previously looked at the early stages of industrialization of iron and steelmaking, between roughly 1200 and 1850. To briefly recap, making steel was an involved multi-step process. Iron would first be smelted from iron ore in a blast furnace, resulting in high-carbon pig iron. This pig iron was then placed in a special furnace, initially a finery furnace, later a puddling furnace, to remove the carbon and other impurities, resulting in wrought iron. Wrought iron bars would then be placed into clay chests next to sources of carbon and heated for a period of several days, allowing the iron to gradually reabsorb carbon, producing blister steel. The methods varied in their specifics across time and place, but this was the general process in Western Europe. Gradually the various steps in this process improved, blast furnaces got larger and more fuel-efficient, labor and timber intense. Of charcoal was replaced as a blast furnace fuel by coke made from coal. Charcoal-fueled finery furnaces were replaced with coal-fueled puddling furnaces. Steam engines replaced water wheels for driving bellows and other machinery. Tilt hammers were replaced with faster rollers for shaping the iron into bars and plates. The replacement of charcoal, which demanded huge inputs of wood with coke, enabled a huge increase in iron production. Zero. In 1720, British blast furnaces were prod. UCING 13 tons of iron a week on average. By 1806, they had reached 36 tons and by 1849, average weekly output was 67 tons. Similarly, in 1720, British iron production was just over 20,000 tons a year. By 1806, it had reached 250,000 tons, and by 1850, it had reached 2.25 million tons. However, this iron was largely turned into wrought and cast iron, not steel, the proportions of which varied over time, but generally most pig iron was converted to wrought iron. The process of producing steel had been improved with Huntsman's Crucible Process 1, but that still relied on slow and expensive blister steel as an input. By 1850, steel remained four to five times as expensive as wrought iron and was largely used in small quantities for specialized applications such as cutting tools, files, cutlery, surgical instruments, and razors. Of the 2.25 million tons of pig iron produced in Britain in 1850, only 50,000 tons, just over 2%, became steel. Likewise, in the U.S. in 1850, pig iron O. Output was perhaps 560,000 tons a year, very little of which became steel. As late as 1867, only 20,000 tons of steel were produced in the U.S., less than 2% of the pig iron produced. The Bessemer process, the desire for cheaper, more abundant steel, inspired many people to explore better ways of producing it. But success didn't come until the 1850s, with Henry Bessemer. Bessemer was a professional inventor, whose previous successful inventions had left him wealthy. Highlights Inkle. Uday, a dated stamp for the Internal Revenue Office, and methods for making embossed velvet and bronze powder by machine. He had no metallurgical background, but in 1854 during the Crimean War, and the resulting demand for armaments, he began to study the problem of making better quality iron and steel for heavier guns. During his experiments he hypothesized that if a large enough surface of molten pig iron could be exposed to air, it would quickly be turned into wrought iron. Bessemer R. tested his idea in a small crucible with 10 pounds of molten pig iron. After 10 minutes of blowing air through the iron, he found that it had become wrought iron. Bessemer then repeated the experiment at a larger scale. He built a four-foot-tall cylinder that held nearly 800 pounds of molten pig iron, with openings at the bottom for blowing in air. 
when Bessemer ran his experiment again, after ten minutes of blowing air flames erupted from the top of the cylinder. According to Bessemer, then, followed a succession of mild explosions, throwing molten slags and splashes of metal high up into the air, the apparatus becoming a veritable volcano in a state of active eruption. The explosions resulted from exothermic reactions between oxygen in the air and the silicon, manganese and carbon in the iron, too. Not only were impurities in the iron removed, but the process required no fuel input beyond that required to initially melt the iron, because the melting point of iron rises. As impurities get removed, previous methods of iron refining, such as puddling, had resulted in a pasty, partially melted ball of iron as its melting point rose above the temperature of the furnace. But the exothermic Bessemer process produced enough heat to keep the iron liquid as it was refined. Not only did this reduce the labor required compared to puddling, in which workers manually stirred the pasty ball of iron, but it meant that iron and steel produced by the Bessemer process sue LD be cast into large elements. Conventional wrought iron could only produce large elements by welding together individual bars. 3. Bessemer presented his findings in 1856, in a talk to the British Association for the Advancement of Science, titled The Manufacture of Malleable Iron and Steel Without Fuel. Within two weeks, he'd sold his first license for the process, but Bessemer licensees almost immediately ran into problems. The metal they produced was found to be brittle and imp, oscillable to forge or roll into useful shapes. One licensee stated that the resulting iron ingots were crushed into rough gravel-like powder, showing a total want of malleability. Bessemer was forced to refund £32,500 worth of licensing fees. Two problems vexed Bessemer. First, the air blast left oxygen dissolved in the metal. This was solved by Robert Moucher, who added Spiegelisen, a cast iron with a high manganese content, to the liquid iron after the air blow was completed. Bar. Eclau 1981. Moucher also solved the problem of how to reliably get steel from the Bessemer process, by blowing the air until all the carbon in the iron was removed, and then adding it back via the Spiegelisen. The second problem was the phosphorus content of the iron ore. In his experiments Bessemer had by chance used some of the only ore in Britain that was low in phosphorus. Higher phosphorus ores resulted in metal that was unusable. Phosphorus content was less of a problem in Rho. UGHT iron production due to the lower temperatures, which prevent the phosphorus oxides from reducing back into the metal. The problem of high phosphorus ores wouldn't be solved until 1877 with the development of the Thomas Gilchrist process, which substituted a dolomite lining for the sand lining in the converter. The basic dolomite lining would react with the acidic phosphorus oxide in the liquid iron, producing slag that could be removed. This version of the Bessemer process would also be known as the basic Bessemer process. His credibility gone, Bessemer was forced to open his own steelworks in Sheffield in 1858. Over the next two years he worked to find sources of low phosphorus ores. 4. Found a more durable converter lining and developed the iconic pear-shaped tilting converter. 5. By the early 1860s his steelworks were turning a profit, and after a successful demonstration of Bessemer steel at the 1862 London International Exhibition, the technology began to be noticed and adopted by other ironmakers. By 1865 steel was being produced by the Bessemer process for about the cost of wrought iron, and by 1873 the Bessemer process was producing 500,000 tons of steel a year in Britain, compared to 3 million tons of wrought iron. 
but although Bessemer steel could substitute for wrought iron, it was of lower quality than crucible steel. It had substantially less tensile strength, for instance, and crucible steel would continue to be used for tools and other applications where higher quality steel was required. 6. Bessemer converter. The Bessemer process was brought to the U.S. by Alexander Holly, a railroad engineer. On a trip to Europe in 1862 to investigate European weapon-making practices, he visited Bessemer's plant in Sheffield. Impressed, upon returning to the U.S., he organized a group of investors to purchase a license, and the first Bessemer plant in the U.S., designed by Holly, was built in Troy, N.Y. In 1865, Holly would go on to design 11 of the first 13 Bessemer plants in the U.S., and develop many improvements to the process, including a removable bottom that made changing linings faster, and a system for recycling the waste heat emitted by the reaction. Mesa 1995. By 1870 Bessemer steel was 38% of the steel made in the U.S., and by 1875 it was 88%. As in Britain, adoption of the Bessemer process greatly increased the total amount of steel produced, of the 1.66 million tons of pig eye Ron produced in the U.S. in 1870, there were 69,000 tons of steel. By 1875 that had reached 2,390,000 tons, respectively. In the U.S., Bessemer steel was overwhelmingly used to produce a single product railroad rails. Of the 390,000 tons of steel produced in the U.S. in 1875, 260,000 tons, 66%, went to steel rails. By 1879, over a third of all iron and two-thirds of the steel in the U.S. was used to produce rails. Previously, rails had been made of wrought iron bars welded together, ND then rolled into a T-shape. These welds created planes of weakness, and wrought iron rails would eventually fail by delaminating along the welds. As railroad track miles increased, by 1880, there were over 90,000 miles of railroad in the U.S., and rails got heavier to accommodate larger locomotives. Railroad companies were motivated to find a longer-lasting rail. U.S. railroads began to experiment with steel rails in the early 1860s and found that a steel rail would last anywhere from twice as long to 20 times as long as a wrought iron rail 7. By 1883, Bessemer steel rails were cheaper than wrought iron rails and had completely replaced iron rails in new and replacement track the open hearth process but while the Bessemer process could be used to produce a satisfactory rail, in the U.S. it struggled to produce steel suitable for other applications such as buildings and bridges. The designer of one of the first steel railroad bridges in the U.S., T. He 1879 Kinsey Street Bridge, described its Bessemer steel as a rather unsatisfactory material. The bridge would be dismantled in 1899 closing parenthesis, Bessemer steel ropes on the Brooklyn Bridge were repeatedly found to be brittle, and Bessemer steel beams were known to snap in two or otherwise fail unexpectedly. One engineer in 1887 stated that the Bessemer process has also fallen into considerable disrepute for structural purposes. Not a few experienced engineers are now stipulating in their specifications that Bessemer steel will not be allowed to be used, especially for tension members. Even with its updates, several problems with the Bessemer process remained. While the Thomas Gilchrist modification to the converter lining could remove phosphorus, it, perhaps ironically, required a minimum amount of phosphorus to work. Iron ores in the U.S., while they had phosphorus impurities, didn't have sufficient phosphorus content to make the chemistry go, and the Thomas Gilker East process was largely not adopted here. Bessemer steel thus often had phosphorus impurities that made it brittle. 
and because the Bessemer process ran so quickly, the reactions ran in roughly 10 to 20 minutes, it was extremely difficult to control. The Bessemer process would eventually be superseded in the U.S. by another steelmaking process, the open hearth process. The open hearth process was developed by the Siemens brothers in the 1860s, largely by William Siemens, and in some ways was an evolution of the puddling process for making wrought iron. Iron would be placed in a furnace, and a mixture of air and gas would be burned and blown over the top of the iron. The burned exhaust would then flow through a series of brickwork passages, which would absorb its heat. After a period of time the flow would be reversed, and air and gas would be blown through the now-heated brickwork, absorbing its heat before being burned and blown over the iron. Like the puddling pro, cess the air blowing over the iron would oxidize the carbon and other impurities in the iron. 8. This regenerative furnace, first developed by the Siemens brothers in the 1850s, not only used less fuel than a traditional furnace, but also produced enough heat to keep the iron molten, even as the removal of impurities drove its melting point up. Thus, like the Bessemer process, it removed the need for manual stirring of the iron. The concept of melting steel in a shallow open hearth had been considered as far back as 1722, but until the development of the regenerative furnace, it wasn't possible to generate enough heat to do it. Of an open hearth furnace, via McHugh 1980, on the surface, the open hearth process does not seem obviously superior to the Bessemer process. Unlike the Bessemer process, the open hearth process required fuel to run. It also took much longer than the Bessemer process, several hours as opposed to 20 minutes, and was significantly more expensive. However, the longer process made it easier to adjust the makeup of the steel being produced and produce different types of steel, and the fact that the heat from the Bessemer process was generated from the reactions taking place, and thus didn't require additional fuel, meant that the types of iron it could take as an input were limited. In particular, the Bessemer process couldn't use as much steel scrap in the mix. As steel scrap prices fell from wastage during steel R, ale production and from accumulation of worn-out steel rails, its use became increasingly attractive. 9. Peter Temin has also argued that the lower air exposure of open hearth steel compared to Bessemer resulted in fewer embrittling nitrogen impurities, and while the Thomas Gilchrist process didn't work on the low phosphorus U.S. ores in a Bessemer converter, the same adaptation, a basic dolomite furnace lining in an open hearth furnace did allow the use of low phosphorus ores. 10. This U. LTI Mately allowed open hearth costs to reach parity with Bessemer costs in the U.S., as cheaper sources of ore could be used. Also, by the 1880s, the minimum amount of steel production a Bessemer plant required to produce cheaply enough to compete with established producers was enormous, over 100,000 tons per year. The minimum efficient size of an open hearth furnace, on the other hand, was much smaller 10,000 tons per year, meaning access to capital was less of a barrier to entry. Like Bessemer, Siemens encouraged adoption of his process by producing steel in his own steelworks. After a display of open hearth steel at the 1867 Paris Exhibition, the process began to gain traction with ironmakers. While open hearth steel was initially more expensive than Bessemer steel, its other benefits made it more attractive for other uses. In the U.S., this was at least partly due to the way the American steel industry had developed, with a focus on production volume, particular RLY steel rail production. That often came at the expense of quality, as the captive of the railroads the Bessemer process had served their need for large output, 
but as it turned out this large output was one of its inherent dangers. Bessemer mills in the United States could not properly manufacture structural steel for four related reasons. First, many companies had added structural mills alongside their rail mills. To keep both mills constantly busy, managers alternate. Ely charged their Bessemer melting furnaces with pig iron suitable for making rail steel and with iron of the higher qualities, suitable for structural shapes. When these two streams of metal inevitably got mixed up, the product was excellent rails but inferior structural shapes. Second workers in the Bessemer casting pits, blooming mills and bloom yards were trained to get steel out of the way, quickly, often regardless of its precise quality. This also meant that not all defective steel could be identified and rejected. Third, in contrast to the Bessemer converter's 10-minute blow, the open hearth's leisurely place allowed the operator to examine and test the metal. Finally, the mentality fostered by the Bessemer works made it impossible to manufacture high-grade structural steel there. Causes of failure in steel have proved much more likely to occur at Bessemer mills, where all hands are trained for output and tonnage, than at the open heart. H. Blooming Mills, where the men are more conservative and slower in their work and are less pushed. Thomas Misa, a nation of steel, as buildings, bridges and infrastructure began to replace rails as the major consumers of steel in the U.S. at the end of the 19th century, Steel production was increasingly done in open hearth furnaces. Andrew Carnegie, an early producer of Bessemer steel, would lament that engineers are all specifying for open hearth steel. It is impossible to sell B. Summer steel for bridges, boiler plates, ships, or even for these enormous 22-story steel structures which are going up throughout the country. In 1879, Bessemer steel was 90% of all steel produced in the U.S., by 1900, it was 66%, with 33% open hearth. By 1911, open hearth was 66%, with Bessemer just 33%. Increasing scale, the other major development in iron and steel production in the second half of the 19th century, was the continuously increasing scale of the process. As in 1850, British blast furnaces were producing in the neighborhood of 3,500 tons of steel per year. By 1900, U.S. blast furnaces were producing more than 10 times that on average. This was a combination of the blast furnaces themselves getting physically larger. British blast furnaces increased in height from 35 to 50 feet in 1815 to 100 feet after 1860, and from increasing the amount of iron they could process. The use of hot blast, for instance, not only increased fuel efficiency but allo. When a blast furnace to increase output, as it shortened the process time, as the volume of iron produced exploded in the 1870s, innovations enabling increased throughput of blast furnaces followed. Carnegie's blast furnaces, Lucy, Isabella, and then those at the E.T. Works, were the largest and most energy-consuming in the world, by hard driving, though the use of more intense heat and improved and more powerful blast engines, the Lucy furnace increased production from 1300 tons in 1872 to 100,000 tons in the late 1890s. By 1890, other furnaces besides those of Carnegie were producing over 1,000 tons a week, an enormous increase over the 70 tons a week of the blast furnaces, even as late as the early 1870s. Alfred Chandler, the visible hand, despite the massive increase in output, the number of blast furnaces decreased over this time period, as output was concentrated in a smaller number of larger higher output furnaces, today, large blast fur. Naces produce upwards of 3 million tons of pig iron a year, more than 100 times than all of England produced in 1720. As scale increased and methods of recycling waste heat were adopted, blast furnaces were increasingly efficient in their use of coke, 
In 1800, a British blast furnace required six to seven tons of coke for each ton of iron produced. By 1870, that had been reduced to two tons, and by 1900, it was approaching one ton. McCloskey 1973, this increase in scale, also took place in the rest of the iron and steel making process. This first took place in rail mills, which in the 1850s were producing enough rails that they could consume the output of two or three blast furnaces. By the 1860s several large rail mills with integrated blast furnaces had appeared, which soon began to produce wire, beams, and bar iron. At the time, iron production still relied on the labor-intensive puddling process, and these works often employed thousands of people. These large integrated mills were the first in the U.S. to adopt the Bessemer process in the 1860s and the open hearth process in the 1880s. Over time Bessemer converters increased in size, from 2.5 tons in the 1860s to more than 10 tons in the 1880s, compared to 500-pound capacity of the puddling furnace, and steelworks added more of them, often mixing the outputs of several different converters to achieve a more uniform product. By the 1880s, Bessemer plants were utilizing the output of sever, alblast furnaces to feed many converters, and producing more than 100,000 tons of steel a year. Open hearth furnaces likewise increased in size. In 1874, Siemens Open Hearth Steelworks was producing 1,000 tons of steel a year, or roughly 19 tons per week. By 1900 a single open hearth could produce 40 tons in a single heat, and by the 1950s hearths of 500 to 600 tons were being built. Unlike the puddling process, the Bessemer and open hearth processes could be scaled up without adding much L. A bore, and over time the capital labor and the output per employee increased, 11. Temin 1964, the rest of the steel process was similarly improved. As Peter Temin notes, at rolling mills, steam and later electric power replaced the lifting and carrying action of human muscle. Mills were modified to handle the steel quickly and with a minimum of strain to the machinery and people disappeared from the mills. By the turn of the century, there were not a dozen men. On the floor of a mill rolling 3,000 tons a day, or as much as a Pittsburgh rolling mill of 1850 rolled in a year. Peter Temin, Iron and Steel in 19th Century America and Smill, notes that the coke-making process also improved. Before 1900, about 95% of coke production had been done in closed beehive ovens. They discharged distillation and flue gases through a central chimney, and the heat required for pyrolysis was supplied by partial combustion of coal, an in a fission process that wasted about 45% of the charge fuel. Otto Hoffman, regenerative byproduct ovens, where chemicals and energy and waste gases are recovered while coke yields are increased, became the mainstay of modern coking. Their coke yield, as share of the charged coal, is higher than in beehive ovens, commonly 10 to 15%, and they work with a variety of bituminous coals. Václav Smil, Still the Iron Age, by the end of World War I, 50% of coke in the U.S. was being produced in byproduct tea ovens. As steel mills got larger, more mechanized, and increasingly efficient in material and energy use, the costs of producing steel fell. In 1867 a Bessemer steel rail cost $167 in the U.S., roughly twice as much as a wrought iron rail, already an improvement compared to the crucible process. By 1898, it had fallen to $17.62, a price at which the largest, most efficient producers were still earning a gross profit of nearly 40% 13, and though wrought iron continued to be used, see, the wrought iron Eiffel Tower in 1889, steel increasingly replaced it. By 1906, virtually all pig iron was being converted into steel 13. 
Sources, roughly in order of importance, asterisk Thomas Misa, A Nation of Steel, asterisk Peter Temin, Iron and Steel in 19th Century America, asterisk Kenneth Baraclow, The Development of the Early Steelmaking Processes, Thesis, asterisk Jean McHugh, Alexander Hawley and the Makers of Steel, asterisk Václav Smil, Still the Eye, Ron Age, asterisk R.F. Tilecoat, A History of Metallurgy, asterisk Alfred Chandler, The Visible Hand, asterisk Alfred Chandler, Scale and Scope, Asterisk Robert Rogers, and Economic History of the American Steel Industry, Asterisk Jeremy Attic and Jan Bruckner, Steel Rails and American Railroads, 1867-1880, Asterisk Carnegie Steel, The Making, Shaping, and Treating of Steel, also later editions by U.S. Steel, Asterisk Alan Birch, The Economic History of the British Iron and Steel Industry, 1784-1879, Asterisk Alexander Hawley, A Treatise on Ordnance and Armor, Asterisk Deirdre McCloskey, Economic Maturity and Entrepreneurial Decline, Footnotes, Zero. This appears to be less true in places that had an abundance of timber. The U.S., for instance, continued to use charcoal long after Britain had switched to coke, Temin, 1964. One steel could also be produced directly from the puddling process, but most steel was still produced via cementation, Baraclaw, 1981. Two more s. Specifically, the reactions that took place are described by Baraclaw. 3. For instance, here's Hawley discussing steel in 1865. The grand advantage of low-carbon steel over wrought iron, for nearly all purposes, is that it can be melted at a practicable heat and run into large masses, thus avoiding the serious defect of wrought iron in large masses, want of soundness and homogeneity. The want of homogeneity, the numerous stratia of impurities and plan, s of weakness introduced into wrought iron, especially in large masses all the way from the puddle ball to the finished gun, its grand defect by the present processes of manufacture, is imperfect welds. The casting of low steel into masses of any size overcomes this whole difficulty. A wrought iron cannon, for instance, would be built up from many wrought iron bars welded together, cross-section of a wrought iron cannon showing individual bars. 4. The role. E of phosphorus was not understood until the early 1860s, and finding suitable ores was hit or miss until then. Mesa 1995. 5. The purpose of the tilting was so that the liquid iron would not run out through the airways after the air blast was complete. Mesa 1995. 6. Later crucible steel could use Bessemer steel as an input, and didn't require cemented blister steel first. In the early days of Bessemer Steelworks its main product was crucible steel, Mesa 1995. 7. Railroads' experience with steel versus iron rails varied, as can be seen in this table from Attic 1982. 8. The chemical reactions that took place in the open hearth furnace were largely the same as took place in the Bessemer converter, Baraclaw 1981. 9. There were broadly two variations of the open hearth process, one which made steel from pig iron and scrap steel, and one which made steel from pig iron and iron ore. These were sometimes known as pig and scrap, and pig and ore respectively. The pig and scrap process was also known as the Siemens-Martin process, McHugh 1980. 10. I don't 100% understand why this is, but I assume it goes back to the self-heating nature of the Bessemer converter requiring a certain ore chemistry to work. 11. For some reason different sources, Temin, Chandler, Rogers, Smill, dramatically disagree on the average output of a U.S. blast furnace. I've used the Rogers numbers in the above graph, opening square bracket, 12. Though a spike in demand and then the policies of U.S. steel would return to a consistent price of $28, Temin, 1964, Chandler, 13. 
though much of it was low-carbon mild steel that was chemically very similar to wrought iron, simply produced by the open hearth and Bessemer processes instead of puddling. Tilecoat 2002, MISA 1995.